You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In his book titled Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges argues that many Christians view sins incorrectly, uh, that we tend to rank them, uh, that there are even what he says sometimes in our thinking, sins that are respectable or acceptable. Uh, in other words, we may be repulsed by certain sins, but, but feel as if, hey, no believer is perfect. And so there's certain sins, yes, we know they're not right, but we not just tolerate them, we, we accept them uh, in our lives. Uh, and one of those sins he lists is one of the main subjects of what Jesus will deal with here in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. So you may have noticed if you look at verse 21 that throughout the next section of Matthew 5, you're going to see this phrase, you have heard, but I say unto you. And, and Jesus presents a series of six antitheses as to the law and how the law is to be properly interpreted and applied. And in that, he addresses the issue of murder and then anger. So let's begin with verse 21. Imagine the scene. Jesus has his disciples gathered together. Uh, there may have been others that were listening within a short distance, uh, but Jesus states the obvious in verse 21. Uh, murder is an unacceptable sin. Uh, th this would have generated agreement by the disciples. Uh, if Jesus made this comment in another environment to the Pharisees and the scribes, they would have nodded their head, head in agreement. Like this is a clear an obvious statement. Murder is an unacceptable sin. Uh, but looking at verse 21, you see that Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now, Jesus is quoting the sixth commandment, which begins the, the section from five through 10 on relationships with others. What are those relationships to look like? And as you're processing this teaching, be thinking of Jesus is explaining here 
what it means to say the righteousness of his disciples should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So murder is clearly an unacceptable sin. We would agree with that and, and nod our heads in affirmation. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is it is a very definable act. So notice Jesus says here that, that you have heard this said from people long ago or from long ago. Uh, and there are two ways to possibly interpret that phrase in that Jesus is referring to maybe the very origin of this commandment, uh, that it was given at Mount Sinai to Moses from God that, that no Jew would debate. But he also is probably emphasizing that since the time that command was given, where murder was very definable, that it's gone through a series of interpretations by the rabbis. And that's going to be part of the issue here. Jesus is not coming along with a new interpretation of the law or canceling the previous interpretation. He is presenting the one true interpretation and application of that law that was given to Moses. And so notice, as we might conclude, murder is the intentional taking of another life. And even our own legal system recognizes the distinction between an intentional murder and, and one where a life is lost, but it was an unintentional act. It may have resulted in a murder or may have resulted in the death of one, but it's very different than intentional. So it is correct to interpret this as not just kill, but more precisely murder. It is a very definable act. But you see as well in verse 21, it's a punishable act. You notice in verse 21, and really throughout this section through verse 22, you find the same phrase being repeated that one is now subject to judgment or answerable to the Sanhedrin, or again, in danger of the fire of hell. All three of those phrases are the exact same word. So to be subject to, to be answerable to, to be in danger of, is the same term to be subject to, the same word, which means that you are now liable to be punished. And the punishment in this case would be you lose your life because you have intentionally taken the life of another. So it's no surprise that murder would be seen as an unacceptable sin. It's definable, and it clearly is punishable and is to be taken seriously. But here's where the issue comes in. Jesus says, you have heard this. They've have the record of Moses saying this, and they have centuries of rabbinic teaching explaining how this should play out in the average life of the person. So by the time you get to Second Temple Judaism, which basically means after the Second Temple was rebuilt and the Judaism that's being practiced here in the first century, murder is clearly defined as you're only guilty of murder if you have literally taken the life of another person. 
And that's the understanding, that's the interpretation that the religious leaders have been telling people over and over again. So you can imagine at this point, the thought would be, well, if you have not ever intentionally taken someone else's life, which I'm assuming you would remember if you did that, then you're not guilty of murder because you haven't done the actual physical act of murder. But as we see, Jesus goes on in verse 22 now to say, but I tell you. So keep in mind that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find this familiar critique where it says that, that the crowds recognize Jesus taught with authority. So Jesus now is saying, let me give you the correct interpretation and application of the sixth commandment. And that is not merely that murder is an unacceptable sin, but what Jesus now says is that anger is a murderous act. Anger is a murderous act because that is the correct way to interpret the commandment, thou shalt not murder. And you see this beginning in verse 22, as Jesus now explains this. His definition of a murderer is not the definition of the religious leaders and teachers. Jesus goes deep now to explain this. So notice in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to this anhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell. So you have a couple things here that would broaden the application of this shocking thought that you are guilty of murder, even if you've never actually done the physical act. Well, one, he says, anyone who is angry. Anyone broadens that term out to you and to me. Anyone who has ever felt an injustice done to them, gotten upset with someone, um, maybe even your spouse, someone in the church, um, someone who cut you off while you're driving on Route 4 and you're running late for work, uh, that that's anger. And if any of us have ever experienced that, then according to Jesus' definition here, you've crossed that line. The, the consequences are different because it's not a physical act, but, but you're dealing with the same root issue. So anyone who has done this, notice he says anyone who is angry with his brother, and you could include in that the term brother, really means brother or sister, another person. And in particular, Jesus may be here addressing, even within his own disciples, if you've been angry with one another. And it doesn't take long for us to realize in the Gospels, you have many conversations that happen where, where the disciples are bent out of shape about what someone else has said among the group, uh, positions that they feel of ranking and power that, that they might feel are entitled to them and someone else might receive that. We have personality issues that can happen in churches 
offense genuinely that occur or perceived offense or hurt feelings. So he says, anyone who is angry. But there's something else in this verse that we want to be clear on, and that Jesus is not sort of grading these in three different categories. So you have like a threefold description in verse 22, but Jesus isn't saying, well, here is the first one, and that's not as bad as the second, and the second one's not as bad as the third. He's, he's giving us a fuller manifestation and description to describe anger in its different manifestations and its different forms. So notice the, the description there that you have. Um, the first one is simply, if you are angry with his brother, you'll be subject to judgment. Now, the word anger there means some kind of impulsive um, passion or strong response. In this case, it's associated with a negative, negative thought in terms of wanting to see sort of justice or, or revenge or punishment on behalf of what you feel is something done against you. That it just wasn't right. And, and somehow they should pay for that. And, and it's not happening like you think it should. So you're, you're getting passionate about that. You're getting angry about it. You're getting upset. But then notice the second term he refers to there. If anyone says to his brother, Raka. Now this is an Aramaic term. Uh, it's, a, it's a term of contempt. Uh, in other words, to say that someone is completely thoughtless, uh, it can even go so far as to be saying someone is, is just godless. Uh, it, it, it's just completely the absence of any sense of spiritual awareness. So you're moving now to, again, deeper here, not so much actions, but attitudes of the heart. So as in the, the understanding of the religious leaders, if you define murder as the physical act, that makes life a whole lot easier. Well, you're not a murderer because you haven't physically done that. But Jesus is saying, you're not interpreting the law correctly here. And by moving it into a hard attitude, if any of you has ever been angry, if any of you have ever said something that is negative, and attacks the character of especially another believer, but maybe an unbeliever, then you have basically called them raka. You've spoken of them with contempt. And then the, the third descriptive term there, he says, or you say, you fool. Now, as we've talked about before, the term fool in the Bible is, is not an indictment of one against one's intelligence per se, but more an indictment against their character. You're saying that they are like morally and spiritually bankrupt. Uh, it's the root for our word moron. Uh, you're saying there's, there's like nothing there redeemable. Now notice we, we have clever euphemisms for that. We might jokingly say, well, that person's a real tool. They're a piece of work. Uh, but sometimes in those comments, there's a much deeper sentiment that we're conveying. We're, we're acceptably trying to call them a fool or raka 
or to excuse our anger as if it's it's it has nothing to do with us. It's all about that other person. And so compared to that threefold description of what it means that anger is a murderous act, that he references three forms of, of kind of punishment. Notice the first one, he simply says that they will be susceptible um, to judgment. Uh, they will be subject to that, whether he's referring to the judgment of maybe their peers, others around them, but the reality is uh, that they might experience judgment. Then he talks about they might also experience judgment to the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin would be pretty much the Jewish Supreme High Court. They, they ruled on matters of religious teaching, instruction, and obedience. And then finally, he says, those who do this will be in danger of the fire of hell. And, and I think this suddenly says to us, oh, Jesus is really serious about this sin. Like he's saying, if, if this sin is not brought under the, the teaching of Christ and the obedience of Christ, this is a sin, if this is the pattern in your life, that would actually reveal that you're not a disciple of his. So this is very different than saying you struggle with sin or you struggle with getting control of yourself versus saying you just live this way. In other words, you just excuse it and are like, well, that's just me. Or we say about someone else, well, that's just how they are. It, it is not an excusable sin. It is not to be an acceptable sin. And clearly Jesus is saying that when he's saying, if, if someone is like this, and this is how they live, that, that they are in danger of the fire of hell. And, and you know, for, for us, we might have different imagery we think of, but, but this word hell here, which will come up in the next section in Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is the term Gehenna, which comes from the Old Testament, the Valley of Hanon, which was a place where various pagan kings performed child sacrifices. So it had that very strong negative connotation of something repulsive to God. By the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus's day, the Valley of Hanom has now become this huge, vast wasteland where all human waste and garbage from Jerusalem is taken and continually is burned there. So the association is this is a place of burning, of, of awful smell, stench, and that's a, a physical picture to us of those who will be eternally separated from God's blessing and favor. And Jesus says, that's where anger will take you. It is a murderous act unless something is done about it. But that kind of brings us back to a question that should surface here is, well, then is all anger wrong? You know, is, is all anger sin? Well, you may have noticed in the psalm you read for meditation, God was angry. So, so it can't be that all anger is sin. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6. To confirm what we're saying, here would be an example, one of 
many different examples, Mark chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6, where Jesus is angry. And wanting to be good students of the scriptures, we, we need to say, well, how do we explain these passages in light of what we're just reading? Because the scriptures do not contradict each other. So in Mark 3, verses 4 through 6, we read, uh, and Jesus is dealing here again with the religious leaders. It says, Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? So they are very upset with Christ because he healed a man and it's the Sabbath. But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There is no way to conclude that Jesus was not angry. He was angry. But, but notice the motivation of his anger. He was angry because of their stubborn hearts, because of their spiritual blindness to missing the praise that should have gone to God. Instead, they were caught up in, well, this, this shouldn't have happened because it's the Sabbath. They were caught up in the misinterpretation of the law of God, which is the same subject Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. We could go to other places. Uh, you could look at Galatians 3. There Paul says to the believers in Galatia, you fools. He calls them fools. But the reason he calls them fools is not because he's personally offended at something they've done. It's because they're going off into false doctrine. So how can, can you, you and me know when our anger is amiss? Well, I, I here are some helpful suggestions to kind of ask yourself. Um, if any one of these is true, then your anger does not fit in the category of what we might say a righteous anger or an anger that pleases God. So here would be the first one. Um, if you're simply angry without cause, and I think most times we're angry, we can probably say, no, I'm, I'm angry because of this. But, but if your anger has no real clear cause, then, then it's a sinful anger. Secondly, ask yourself, is your anger disproportionate to the offense? Like, do you find yourself boiling over because of something, but it really is in disproportion to actually what may have been said or happened? So is your anger disproportionate to the offense? The third question to ask yourself is, has your anger been brewing or building over time? Has your, has your anger been brewing or building over time? And then the final one, which I think we, we all, if we're honest, hesitate to even ask ourselves this, that does your anger have any relationship to the gospel and God's holiness? Does your anger have any relationship to the gospel 
or God's holiness. Clearly, when Jesus was angry with the Pharisees, it's related to God's holiness. It's related to the gospel. And so I think we know that most times when we are angry, when we are harboring bitterness or, or hard feelings towards someone else, that that's not what is driving that. It's not that we're concerned about God's holiness. It's not that we're thinking of, you know, how does this impact the gospel? Uh, but it's more, so what do we do then with that? If that really is the majority of what is often at the root of our anger, of us being upset or offended. Well, we get to verses 23 through 26. And, and Jesus presents here, we should always attempt to resolve anger as quickly as possible. Because anger is a murderous act, an attitude that can so quickly take root that we want to resolve this. I can't help but think that right before Jesus started to talk about this in verse 23, that his disciples must have been thinking, Jesus, are you actually saying that, that we're murderers? that we've committed the act of murder? And Jesus was saying that. He's saying that to them. He's saying that to you and me. But with any course of action, Jesus provides a remedy. Anger must be resolved as quickly as possible. And so you see in verses 23 and 24, you have two illustrations. Of, of how we should respond to sinful anger in our life. Verse 23, it says, Therefore, if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Here we're told that the responsibility is to initiate reconciliation. Now, it may surprise us the way that reads. It doesn't say if your brother has an issue and they remember it, they should come to you. And clearly we know there are many times, even within the church, when, when people have that attitude towards others. They'll be like, well, I'm willing to talk about it as long as they'll come to me. Or, or if they say they're sorry first, then I'll discuss it. This puts the responsibility completely now on you as a believer. It says, there you are, all ready for worship. You're in the temple. You've got your gift to present. And there you remember or you feel convicted that, you know what? He, my brother or sister has something that they're holding against me. And it, it hasn't been addressed. It hasn't been talked about. You have the responsibility to initiate reconciliation. And, and it should strike us that in that situation, that priority is put over your worship at that moment because you're told, leave your gift. Don't, don't finish what you're doing and then wait for an opportune time, you need to go and deal with that. 
This partly would explain why later on Peter brings up this issue of forgiveness when, when he says to Jesus, you know, how many times do I need to forgive someone? In other words, Peter heard this instruction. But like many of us, it's a hard thing to take. It's a hard thing to apply. What we're always looking for is just give me the numbers. How many times do I have to forgive someone? When, when is my part done? Well, Jesus is saying here, you are to initiate this. Because it is so important. But, but notice as well here the reminder that there's an urgency to this. Because the second illustration in verses 25 through 26 talk about a matter that is progressing to court. And, and if you listen to those verses, you see there's an urgency here that, that you need to seek grace. And I think in the bigger picture, if we have been the recipients of God's grace, we need to strive to display that grace to others. And so notice what he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you paid the last penny. Again, think of this teaching in light of what I've been referencing, Matthew 5, verse 20. It's all about righteousness. What does it look like to live in conformity to God's standards? which we not have just been called to do as Christians, but we are empowered to do. So in initiating reconciliation, your focus now is not on, well, I wanna prove who's right and who's wrong. Because you know, often in our thinking, what that means is I, I wanna prove that I'm right and the other person was wrong. And I want them to see that and acknowledge it. This is saying your biggest concern should be Who's going to display righteousness? Not, not who's right or who's wrong. What, what does righteousness look like? And, and in this illustration of one who's taking you to court, notice the thought is you're going you're gonna to have to stand before one. And I think there's an eschatological perspective here. As a disciple of Christ, you will stand ultimately before God to give an account, the greatest judge, the ultimate judge. And so in this illustration, you notice in verse 26, it says, you know, that, that you might be thrown into prison if you can't and don't try to settle this, and you won't get out until the last penny is paid. Now, you might think, well, that, you know, is bad, but at least you'll get out, you know, it will be paid. But would you want to think of this in terms of first century context? So there's debtor's prison. And many would go to prison because they had debts that they could not pay. But you can start to see what would happen. If you owe a debt and you're put in prison because you're not paying that debt, you're not working. So therefore that debt is probably never ever going to be paid. And you will never get out of prison. The only way that that worked was often if your family had wealth, 
they would pay your debt for you so you could be released and leave prison. And I don't think it's, it's a far stretch for us to think, is, is Jesus subtly alluding to the fact that you have received grace? You've been let free from a tremendous debt you owed. What is your responsibility and your obligation because of that? Let's go to Romans chapter 12. And verses 17 through 19 provide an additional expansion on well, what does this going and initiating reconciliation look like? So in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19, Paul is applying doctrine to everyday life. Uh, and in verses 17 through 19, he not just agrees with what Christ said, but, but helps us apply it even further. In verse 17, he begins and says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So Paul is acknowledging there could be situations where someone refuses to mend a relationship. They, they don't seem to grasp what you're saying. They, they truly don't take it to heart and try to work on these things. That is beyond your control. But in any relationship that's been fractured or hurt by anger or resentment, may it never be said that we haven't done everything possible in agreement with God's word, to seek to bring reconciliation. That, that if that relationship has changed, it's not because of something we have not done. It's because of the hardness of the other person's heart. So Paul says, do, do whatever is possible to be at peace. Clearly acknowledging in a imperfect world, in a world where there are sinners in the church even, that that's not always going to happen. But then he goes on and says in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Even in Christian settings, there are offenses that are committed. There are times that, that our feelings are hurt and genuinely hurt. Uh, and, and we need to first and foremost realize that healing can only come ultimately from God. And, and whatever we might feel we'd like to see happen, what, what we feel might be in the best interest of the other person to experience, that's not our job to bring that about. And so Paul encourages believers and, and trust those things with God. God is the ultimate judge. He's the one that we will all stand before. And, and when we start to grasp that and apply it to relationships, I think among Christians, there can be a tremendous relief and peace because things are not always made right in this world. We see injustices committed, not just in the church, but even outside the church in our world. 
So for the disciples then and now, there is this challenge. Don't think that you haven't murdered just because you haven't committed the act. That anger is a murderous act, and therefore it requires that we deal with that quickly with, with a sense of urgency. Perhaps Jerry Bridges is onto something that for too many of us, we have sins that we see as respectable or acceptable. Uh, we kind of grade them and say, well, yeah, it's not the best thing, but that's how I am, or that's my personality, uh, or that's not as bad as this. There are no respectable or acceptable sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we are hearing the Sermon on the Mount correctly, we quickly realize it. we cannot do this. It's, it's not our nature. Uh, it's not often even our desire. But then we quickly are reminded that the sermon begins with blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who cry out to you that we need your strength, that we need your love to be obedient. And you have promised to do exactly that in us, in Christ Jesus. May we be disciples who display the righteousness of God our Savior, knowing that we have received more than we deserve from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.